0: All right, today we'll just be looking at Matthew 24, verses 1 through 14. And if you're familiar with this, uh, we are going to get into some Bible prophecy. I don't know about you, I love Bible prophecy. Uh, For me, there's few things that are as fascinating as prophecy. Prophecy is fascinating for a lot of people. People want to know the future a lot of times, and that's certainly one of the reasons why it's fascinating for some. Some like to avoid life's difficulties. They, they want to know what's coming up in the future. And you can know some things of the future. God has revealed some, certainly not all. He wants us to know uh, some things, but obviously He doesn't want us to know everything. Uh, some people want to know the future in, in prophecy because maybe they want to get rich. Uh, they would they would love to know what the stock market's going to do, or you know how how to invest money so they could be wealthy. Some people are probably just curious, and I think that's where the disciples are here in this passage. They're very curious because if you remember when when we left Jesus in Matthew chapter 23, right at the end of Matthew chapter 23, he he kind of left us with a mixture of good news and bad news. Uh, if you look at Matthew twenty three, uh, for example, I mean, he, he's he's been talking to the Pharisees and the other some other religious leaders there in Jerusalem, and he he had some woes to bring on these, these people. And particularly look at verse thirty eight. He says, See, your house is left to you desolate. For I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Well, that's not good news. He, he's weeping, if you will, over Jerusalem in verse 37 when he says, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings and you were not willing. Jesus is clearly not happy here of course the disciples heard everything that jesus was saying to the religious leaders there in jerusalem and that must have uh, got them talking amongst one another at least got them thinking and that ends up leading to them talking to jesus jesus proceeds to give more teaching to disciples and that's what we have here in matthew chapter 24 and 25 this is the last uh, big section that Jesus teaches in Matthew. If you're familiar with the, how Matthew set up, it goes from narrative to, to discourse, narrative to discourse, narrative to discourse. Now, this is the last big section where Jesus is teaching His disciples. And so, these guys were a bit curious, like a lot of people are, about the future, and the questions they asked about it provided this occasion here for Jesus to give his very famous teaching about the end times. And you've probably heard this called the Olivet Discourse. You ever wonder why it's called that? It's, it's because Jesus goes up on the Mount of Olives, which was east of Jerusalem. He he sits down and he teaches this, this, this teaching here in chapters 24 and 25 to his disciples. And that's why it's called the Olivet Discourse, because it took place on the Mount of Olives. Well, how did Jesus and the disciples get there on the Mount of Olives? Well, you need to understand there's a progression, there's a context, a chronolo- chronology if you will here in Matthew. So we let me just kind of back you up. It's been a while. Back you up quickly get the context here. The the overarching context here is Holy Week. Some call it Passion. Uh on Sunday, you remember Palm Sunday, which takes place in Matthew chapter 21, Jesus Rides into Jerusalem on the donkey. The people are laying down their palm branches. People are yelling and shouting and celebrating. A lot of people are thinking the king's finally arrived. So Jesus enters Jerusalem to the shouts of the crowd in chapter 21. Also in chapter 21, on Monday, Jesus disrupted the commercial activities in the temple. He comes in. He he made himself a whip. He's throwing over the money changers' temples and driving out the animals. Well, that didn't make himself very popular on Tuesday. Jesus engages in controversies and debates, particularly with the religious leaders. He gives a public warning to the crowds about the teachers of the law and in chapters twenty two and twenty three Jesus particularly in chapter twenty three Jesus gives a series of woes particularly aimed at the Pharisees. And that was on Tuesday. And so here it is. Jesus has spent a lot of His time here in in that Holy Week within the temple grounds. And apparently it was late Tuesday afternoon that Jesus and His disciples leave the temple. And Here's somebody's artwork of of what uh, Jerusalem may have looked like uh, from the Mount of Olives. But in that picture there you see the... uh, the, uh, the Muslims have their building. <laughs> Minus the Muslims' building, which didn't exist at the time of Jesus. But you get an idea of what. Uh, here Jesus is sitting down on the Mount of Olives, teaching His disciples, overlooking Jerusalem. And so Jesus and His disciples, they, they, they leave the temple grounds there, and, and, and the city of Jerusalem, they, they head out the eastern gate there and make their way back to Bethany. Jesus and the disciples weren't spending the night at Jerusalem. They they would keep going back to Jerusalem during the day, but they were spending the night in Bethany. And the road from Jerusalem to Bethany goes over the Mount of Olives. You can see that's kind of maybe sort of like what they would have seen in the picture there. It would have given them a very spectacular view of the temple. The, the temple grounds, which included not just the temple proper, but every the whole area around it as well, was massive. It was huge. It was beautiful. And the disciples, here they are, they're looking back over the city. They're pointing out the the beautiful buildings of the temple. And you can see, here's a model of probably what it looked like during Jesus' day. It was huge. It was beautiful. Some considered it one of the wonders of the world. Even the Jewish historian Josephus wrote about Romans. Even some of the Roman historians wrote about it. It was, it was, it was a marvel of that ancient world. And Matthew doesn't mention this, but according to Mark chapter thirteen verse one, it says that disciples. Here's what they said. They said, "Look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings." So Mark's pointing out. You know, the guys are looking at. These huge, massive stones, some of these were, some people wonder, how did they ever get them there? Because some of the stones were even bigger than the ones you see in the Great Pyramids. They were huge. The temple and this building stood on top of a mount. As you can see, they, uh, Herod had uh, did some amazing work there. Well he, well, he himself didn't do it, of course, but he had other people doing it. And it took years and decades and decades to build this. They had a massive retaining wall that helped support the mount itself as well as the temple that was kind of located in the middle area there. The temple was awe-inspiring by any standards, it, uh, especially when you think about these guys. These guys are from rural Galilee, <laughs> right? They're from the far north. They're up in the the farm country up there in in Galilee, remember. If you just try to imagine yourself, if 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 you grew up in Central Otago, living on a farm in Central Otago all your life, and then you 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 head to Queen Street in Auckland, imagine how you would feel. You'd be like, whoa. <laughs> you'd be looking around, huge buildings, you know, all the concrete, and every all these people, and you'd be like, whoa, right? Well, I mean, that's kind of like these guys. They're walking around Jerusalem, going, whoa. And so the temple was just awe-inspiring, especially for these just common guys from rural Galilee. And in the midst of that, here they are. They're saying, hey, look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. And look, look what Jesus says here in Matthew 24. Let's start in verse 1. Jesus left the temple and was going away when his disciples came to point out to him the buildings of the temple. But he answered them, You see all these, do you not? Truly, I say to you, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. All right, try to put yourself in the disciples' sandals here for a moment. Okay. These guys, they're like, their mouths are dropping, you know, eyeballs popping out. This place is awesome. (laughs) Ho, ho, ho. Right, and they must be thinking, "Okay, Jesus is going to set up his kingdom. I can't wait, and Jerusalem's going to kind of be at the center. The temple's going to be amazing. Jesus is here,, oh, and, they, and they they weren't understanding what Jesus was talking about in the previous chapter to the Pharisees, and so Jesus is predicting the destruction of the temple here. I can imagine the disciples' jaws just dropping. When they hear those words, they they couldn't possibly imagine the temple being destroyed. They couldn't understand why God would allow that sort of a thing to happen to them again. This wasn't the first time the temple was destroyed. So that that temple you see in that, that model there is called Herod's Temple. That wasn't the first one. Of course, you remember Solomon built the first one. God allowed Solomon to build it. But then there was another one after that, because Solomon's temple was destroyed by the Babylonians. There was one called Zerubbabel's temple that was built after the exile. Remember, Nehemiah and other people were coming back from from, uh, the area of Iraq and Persia. And and, uh, so God were using them to rebuild. But that one was also destroyed. And so Herod's, Herod's made this bigger and better than it's ever been. And so they didn't understand, but that's exactly what God allowed to happen to the temple, and it, and it happened about 40 years after Jesus was on this earth. I don't know if you remember this or not, but it was, it was uh, the Romans who actually sacked Jerusalem in A.D. 70. They massacred, slaughtered most of the... The, the citizens of that area, in fact I, I, I read some figures, over a million Jews died. And in the process, what the Romans did is they, they came in after slaughtering everybody, they uh, they saw the temple and there was there was gold and other things on it and they didn't like the Jews too much. So what they did is they they, they would build all the, you know, put all this wood around the, the temple and just burn it to the ground they destroyed all the stones just turned it into rubble in fact uh, it, it was after they were done even josephus himself says it was hard to to know where the temple was other than the you know the mount itself they just totally annihilated the place and took anything of value to them back to rome and so the romans did exactly what jesus had predicted they had rejected god God rejected them. So, my friends, you've got to understand something here, all right? There's a little bit of a cultural barrier, maybe. You you may not understand what's going on, that that the temple was more to Israel than beautiful buildings. Yeah, it was beautiful, but it was far more than that. So you need to understand this to understand, uh, well, what, what the disciples and anybody else who heard Jesus were thinking. You have to understand the temple is a sign of God's presence. It was a sign that, that God's blessing was on the nation. And so when the temple was destroyed, it was, for them, they're, they're thinking, well, that means that God has turned His back on them and their nation. They're, they no longer have God's blessing. It's like God's departed. He's turned her back against Israel. And if you know the story, you know Israel was never the same after A.D. 70. They were scattered all over the world, and there's been no temple since then. If you remember, uh, it wasn't until the 1940s that God started. It, it's cool to see what God's doing now. We we live in an age you can see God is since the 1940s. God's bringing the the Hebrews back to the land that He's designated for them. They've become a state now, and and uh, he, the, even the Hebrew language is being revived. People are learning Hebrew. But in the midst of this discussion, if you want to call it that, the disciples asked Jesus three questions, at least in the English here. You'll see three questions in verse 3. And uh, Jesus is going to proceed to answer these questions. But look at verse 3, because it says, As He, that's Jesus, sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to Him privately, saying, tell us when will these things be and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age so three questions there in our english bibles and so if you look in the in the context here Matthew 24 and 25 Jesus is going to answer those questions that question there when will the temple be destroyed Well, that question is not really answered in Matthew, but if you look at uh, the screen here, it's actually answered in Luke chapter 21. Look what Jesus says here in Luke 21. Because this answers that question. When will the temple be destroyed? Jesus says, when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then know that its desolation has come near. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains, and let those who are inside the city depart. And let not those who are out in the country enter it. For these are days of vengeance to fulfill all that is written. Alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days. For there will be great distress upon the earth and wrath against this people. They will fall by the edge of the sword and be led captive among all nations. And Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles." Until the time of the Gentiles are fulfilled. Key phrase there, by the way, time of the Gentiles. That, that's the time we're in now. We are in the time of the non-Jews, if you will. And uh, that's we're, we're going to keep being in that time period until, that, until God's fulfillment is done. And that will be done at the end of the tribulation. When Jesus comes back, the time of the Gentiles ends, and then, then we have the time of the Jews time of Israel and God will set up the millennial kingdom when Christ comes back so when will the temple be destroyed well it was destroyed in A.D. 70 and Jesus talked about it here in Luke chapter 21 the second question in verse 3 is what is the sign of Christ's return see that there in verse 3 what is the sign of Christ's return they're asking Jesus when are you going to return Well, that's actually answered. We're not going to look at it right now, but it's answered in verses 29 through 44. It's answered in 29 through 44. And so Jesus is going to talk about various things that are going to happen before His return, His second coming. Uh, We'll look at that later, but not today. But let's look at the third question, which Jesus does answer here for us. And that is, what is the sign of the end of the age? What is the sign of the end of the age? There's a lot of things we don't know, but it's interesting what Jesus does tell us here. And so from from verse 4 to 28, Jesus talks about various things that match up with the book of Revelation. And that's one reason we know this is talking about the tribulation period. By tribulation, let me define this, I mean that seven-year period of time that Daniel and Revelation talk about. There's a seven-year period of time. Uh, You can read about it in Revelation in Revelation 6, 7, 8, 9, most of those middle chapters in Revelation, these things match up with that. So in this Olivet Discord, Jesus is making clear that the fulfillment was in the future. The message here of Matthew 24 and 25 is a prophetic sermon. It, it's just, it, it sweeps the 12 here into a time that is yet to come. The time they themselves, they would never experience. There's at least three indicators, by the way, in our text here that refer to the distant future. And, and it, it, there's, there's at least three things that could not be applied to the destruction of Jerusalem in A.D. 70. I say that because there are, there are some who say all this stuff refers to A.D. 70. or And then there's some that say it refers to the church age. So let me give you at least three points in our text that shows you this is talking about the tribulation, not 8070 and not the church age. All right? And the first point is actually found in verse 8. Because verse 8 says, All these are but the beginning of the birth pains. Jesus talks about various things that happen in the tribulation wars, rumors of wars, and other things. So just think about that. When it mentions birth pains, you see that throughout the Bible. Those of you who who have given birth to children, you you know. You know what birth pains are like. You don't have birth pains all your life, do you? No, of course not. You have birth pains right before you give birth to children. (laughs) Kind of obvious. But sometimes we miss some obvious things in the text. And so the, the first indicator is that this stuff that's going to happen is going to be like birth pains. Jesus mentions things like the false Christ, the false Messiah, in verse 5. There's going to be international warfare, verse 6 and 7. Famines, earthquakes, verse 7. And Jesus says those are just the beginning. You see that in verse 8? That's just the beginning, he says. All these are but the beginning of the birth pains. So, think about it. Labor pains, they don't happen at conception. They don't happen throughout the pregnancy. They happen just before birth. So, Jesus says there's going to be various things going on right before His coming. And so, the figure of birth pains, therefore, would not have been appropriate to represent either the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70, nor the church age. A second indicator that these events are futures actually found in verses 13 and 14. Verse 13, Jesus says, But the one who endures to the end will be saved, and this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. So, Jesus speaks of believers who are going to endure the birth pains, to the end. They're they're going to experience some of these these events we'll talk about in a moment. And so, since the disciples obviously didn't live to the end of the age, (laughs) the events of chapters 24 and 25 could not apply to them, nor could it apply to believers in the church age. Couldn't include us in this present time. A third indicator that this is talking about future events is the worldwide proclamation of the gospel which verse 14 talks about the worldwide notice it's a worldwide proclamation of the gospel now we we live in a wonderful age the apostles were able to spread the gospel and 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 the believers in that time period you can read about it in the book of acts but the roman empire was only partially evangelized it was not fully evangelized, so it couldn't apply to that time period. It couldn't apply to our age that we live in now, because the whole world has not been evangelized. The spread of the gospel, even even under modern mass media, in the internet, in the world wide web, and everything we have, there are there are parts of the world who have never heard the gospel. There's still billions of people who have never heard the gospel. So that's a third indicator that this hasn't happened yet. It's not referring to AD 70, and it's not referring to the church age. So there is a time period yet to come where these events will take place that Jesus talks about here. So let's consider some of the significant events that Jesus talks about here that are going to occur. And by the way, these will occur in the first three and a half years of the tribulation. During that first three and a half years of the seven-year trib. And we know that because verse fifteen talks about the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel so if you read what Daniel says about the abomination of desolation, he says it comes the midway point halfway point of the tribulation so these things are happening before that time period all right so let's look what Jesus says verses four and five he says there's going to be religious deception. Look what Jesus says in verse 4. Jesus answered the disciples. They've asked these questions. Hey, when's the coming of the end of the age? Jesus answered them. He says, see that no one leads you astray, for many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ, and they will lead many astray. Unfortunately, this has happened a lot to the Jews over the years. They've had many false prophets and many false Christs lead them astray. And some have got them in really big trouble, uh, even with the Romans. There were false Christs, Messiahs before Jesus' time, and guess what? There's there's been after Jesus, and even up to our own day. But in the end times, it's interesting, Jesus obviously knows that that the number and the influence of these false Christs, false Messiahs, will increase. If you read Revelation chapter 6, the worst one we call the Antichrist, don't we? Revelation 6 talks about this Antichrist. Daniel talks about an Antichrist who will rise up. He's he's the worst out of all of them. Revelation 6 talks about him riding on a white horse. He's known as the Antichrist. He's that final world dictator who's going to lead the nations astray. He's going to make a peace covenant with Israel for the first three and a half years, and then as verse 15 says, as Daniel the prophet said, he's going to break that peace treaty with Israel, and then, uh, boy, the world's going to be a mess for three and a half years after that. So he's going to begin his career as a peacemaker, a, a political diplomat, if you will, signing covenants with Israel. He's going to appear like he's protecting her from the enemies, Daniel 9 says. But Israel's going to welcome this man in with open arms, because Israel's surrounded by enemies, aren't they? Israel's just surrounded by enemies. It's only by God's sovereignty that they exist. (laughs) If it wasn't for God, they would be wiped off the map a long time ago. And so they're going to openly welcome this man in. He's going to be their great benefactor, but he's going to turn against them verse 6 talks about wars look at verse 6 you will hear of wars and rumors of wars see that you are not alarmed for this must take place but the end is not yet so these things will happen in the future and they've of course we've had lots of wars throughout the centuries but jesus is remember he's talking about tribulation period here you're going to hear of wars rumors of wars but it's I'm not coming back yet. Not yet. So the second birth pain will involve intensified and unparalleled warfare among the nations of the world. There will be constant talk of wars. There will be rumors of wars. There will be things like, according to what Jesus says, not like we have known before. So there, doubtless there's going to be Hot, what we would call hot wars. There's going to be cold wars. All those things going on. So wars and rumors of wars. And so, follow the analogy of labor pains here for a moment. The implication is that, that the conflicts, they're going to increase. They're going to increase in number. They're going to increase in intensity. And the closer we get to Jesus returning, these things, he says, will increase. They're going to increase in... Number and intensity they're going to just and then what's going to happen the the war of all wars that ends all wars is what the Battle of Armageddon and Jesus it's not really a battle because Jesus is just going to come back and he's going to slaughter he's going to end all wars when King, when King Jesus comes back, the grand Holocaust of bloodshed and carnage will take place, but Jesus says that believers during that time should not be what do you notice what it said don't be frightened. So the believers who are alive at this time don't need to be frightened because he says those things are evidence that God's plan is actually unfolding. God is sovereignly ruling over all of his creation. Some people might think, hey, the world is falling apart. And it might appear that way, but Jesus says, I'm in control. I am sovereign. This is my plan. I don't know about you, but I find that encouraging even even though yeah wars and rumors of wars going on, he's saying it's my plan, and when you see that you'll you'll know that the end is coming soon. <laughs> I will come back, I will deal with this and Jesus said those events must take place; they're actually an indication of the end, but they're not yet the end he says and then in verse seven he says in the tribulation, there's going to be famines and earthquakes. Again, you see the same things. Read the judgments that, that happen in Revelation. But verse 7 says, For nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. Well, some say, hey, haven't we experienced these things today? And we've been experiencing them for a long, long time. Yes, that's true. Natural disasters of staggering proportions are, are going to happen during this time period. Read Revelation. It's just staggering. The, the earth is cursed. It, it, Romans 8 says the, this fallen world lives un, under the curse of sin. It, it is groaning, but, but as the cursed earth uh, goes on, closer to the Christ Christ's return, it, it's just going to disintegrate. Again, read Revelation. It talks about crops... And vegetation is just going to be devastated throughout the world. I think one of those judgments Revelation talks about says it like, like a fourth or a third of all the trees and the, the crops and the vegetations will be destroyed in just one judgment. And as a result of that, there will be great famines. A third uh, Revelation says a third of the world's shipping will be destroyed. The Bible says in Revelation, the, the water itself will be contaminated. And we even see calendars and seasons and even the tides themselves are, are being disrupted and thrown out of kilter as a result of God's judgment. Well, then in verse 9, we see there's, there's going to be martyrs, Christian martyrs. Look at verse 9. Jesus says, Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death, and you will be hated by all nations. Notice why. Why are they going to be hated? It's for my name's sake. So the fourth labor pain, if you will, leading up to the birth, which is Jesus' return, is going to be severe persecution of believers, and it's coming from ungodly people. The ungodly world. Christians, by the way, of course, have always been hated by the world. Jesus said that would be the case. He said, as they persecute me, They will persecute you. But here, you have to understand, there's there's an acceleration of worldwide persecution and murders against God's people. Again, notice it's all nations are involved here. Not just, uh, you know, say the, the Muslim countries that surround Israel. It's all nations. The nations hate Christ. That's why they're doing this. Because Jesus says there, verse nine, it's for my name's sake. And so, when, the, if you believe as I do, that the Holy Spirit is is his his special indwelling presence is removed, withdrawn, his restraint his restraint on on Satan and this world is is removed. Well, that's going to just allow Satan greater freedom the the saints are going to suffer like they've never suffered before the only thing that's kind of sort of keeping us together at the moment is the holy spirit and so for those who openly profess christ there's going to be no place to hide there's going to be no way of escape and they're going to be persecuted and martyred for what they do and who they are for claiming the name of christ They're going to suffer on the account of Christ's name, and and that is if they're identified with Him. So there will be martyrs. Number five, there will be worldwide chaos. There will be worldwide chaos. Look at verse 10. And then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. Many false prophets will arise and lead many astray, and because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold but the one who endures to the end will be saved it's just a mess it's worldwide chaos this is the the fifth birth pain it's it, and it's really a consequence of the previous one the fourth one there think about it as as there's persecution and christians being martyred there's an intensity here in the end times and believers are going to be arrested believers are going to be hated Believers probably going to be starving. You know, if you don't take the mark of the beast, Revelation says, then, then you're not going to be able to buy and sell. It's going to be a time where, where, <clears throat> where, if they don't take the mark of the beast, they'll be martyred for Christ's sake. There's going to be, obviously, Jesus says there's going to be some people who claim to be Christians, who made professions of faith, but what are they doing? They're actually defecting. They've had some sort of an outward identification with Christ, but they actually desert Christ, and they desert christ's people, and they claim, "Hey, I never belong to him they're, they're they're doing the same sort of thing, and probably worse than that Peter did to Jesus when jesus when Peter denied Jesus, and so when the persecution becomes too severe, the fire gets hot what do we what do some people do? ooh that fire's too hot that's uncomfortable i'm out of here, and so they forsake Christ, they join. The unbelievers in attacking God's people. That's what Jesus says he'll do. And Jesus actually mentions, sorry, three reasons for their defection. Look at this. Verse 10, he says, The price is just too high. The price is too high. Many are going to fall away. Many will betray one another and hate one another. Price is too high to, to, to be a follower of Christ, to be named among these kind of people. But number two, the deception of false teachers will just be too convincing. They're going to be deceived. Many false prophets will arise, lead many astray, it says in verse 11. And then number three, that sin's just attractive. It's, it's too attractive for some people. You read verse 12 and 13, talks about this lawlessness increasing. The love of many grow, grows cold. And so those who once were true to each other are going to actually end up betraying The believers and so this if you just think about this how is that going to affect relationships how's that how is that going to affect government marriages homes nations oh it's going to be a mess We're, we're going to have marriages torn apart we're going to have homes torn apart nations are being torn asunder because of the a lack of loyalty to one another lawlessness will abound verse 12 says and so even apparently, even the law enforcement agencies are not going to be able to keep the peace. Matthew 24, 13, by the way, is uh is debated. What is that talking about? The one who endures to the end will be saved. Well, that I I can tell you this. It has nothing to do with personal salvation in the present age. That's not what it's talking about. Okay? If you rip it out of its context, you could make it say that. But it's not talking about you know personal salvation in the present age of grace, in this church age. It, notice it talks about the end. And the end doesn't mean the, the end of this life. It's referring to the end of the age. Remember, Jesus. what question is Jesus answering here? Verse 3. The end of verse 3 says, "...what will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age?" Jesus is answering that question. That's the context. And so, those believers on earth during this tribulation period, this terrible period, Jesus is saying, If you endure in your faith to the end of the tribulation, you will be saved. That's what he's talking about. I'm going to come back, and I will deliver you. If you make it to the end, I will deliver you. That's what he's talking about. And then the last one that Jesus gives here is in verse 14. As we lead up to the halfway of the tribulation in verse 15, he says, there will be worldwide preaching. Again, you see the same thing in Revelation. But look what Jesus says in verse 14. He says, and this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations. Notice the word all. Then Jesus says, then the end will come. The end of the tribulation will come. He's going to come back after that happens. And so the the sixth and the last birth pain to indicate that the the end is near will be this worldwide declaration of the gospel. And notice it's preached to all nations, which, of course, this this has not happened yet. Revelation 8 talks about how this is going to happen. Revelation 8 teaches that, that God is going to choose. He's going to seal 144,000 witnesses. And no, they're not Jehovah's Witnesses. They are witnesses of Jehovah's, but they are not Jehovah's Witnesses, okay? There's a difference there. These are actually Jews. In fact, it, they are male Jews, it says. 12,000 from each tribe. They are evangelists for Jesus Christ. And God uses them to carry His message to the world, the ends of the earth. This verse doesn't teach the gospel has to be spread to every nation today in order for Jesus to return for his church. That's not what it's talking about. There are people who use it that way. It's the Lord's return at the end of the age. It's his second coming that Jesus is talking about here. Second coming after the tribulation. So despite all the bad things that happen in the tribulation, there's some great things that happen. There will be Hopefully millions of people saved. Certainly the gospel will be spread. People will hear the gospel. And so this should be encouraging, despite the bad news that Jesus is sharing here, despite the deception of the false teachers, despite the unparalleled warfare, the pestilence, the famine, the the fierce persecution we see against God's saints, uh, despite the defection of false believers, the gospel of Christ's kingdom is going to continue. It's going to be proclaimed. People will be saved. And despite the Antichrist rule, the Lord Jesus Christ will not be without witness. The Antichrist is not in charge. King Jesus is in charge here. And so just before the bold judgments are poured out, and, and we have the, the battle of Armageddon taking place at the end of the tribulation, God's going to supernaturally present the gospel to every person on earth, somehow, some way. Revelation says, uh, Revelation 14, this is interesting. It says that God, one of the ways he's going to do this, he's going to use angels. It says that there will be an angel with an eternal gospel to preach to those who live on the earth and every nation and tribe and tongue and people. And here's what Revelation 14 says. Here's what the angels will say. Fear God. And give Him glory, because the hour of His judgment has come, and worship Him who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and the springs of water. God uses His messengers to accomplish His purposes. And so that will be the final and total evangelization of the earth. And after that, man's day will be finished. The time of the Gentiles will be finished. The rebellion will be over, and King Jesus will deal with that rebellion, and then there will be the millennial kingdom. The opportunity for salvation will be over, because verse 14, look at verse 14, it says, Then the end shall come. The end shall come. Jesus will come back. There won't be a second chance after he comes back. He'll deal with the rebellious ones, those who have come against His people, will be annihilated. The Bible says the Antichrist, Satan, the unbelievers, read Revelation, it says they'll all be cast into the lake of fire. And that's it. That's their final place of doom. I just want to think of a few things of of application, a few points to make on application here, and we'll be done. My first one is, is really, there's something I want you to do as a result of this text. all right. Some texts lend themselves to to telling us to do something. Some texts tell us to believe certain things, think certain ways. Well, this text is actually doing both. And so my first one here is, is just think about this for a moment, that the study of the future should spur us to do something. All right, throughout Scripture... Bible prophecy is, is there to spur us to do something. It should spur us to godly living in the present. Jesus was determined to prepare His disciples for the critical mission ahead. And, and his, his word here should have motivated them to live faithfully to gain this future reward that was coming. Of course, they're thinking here and now, they had the wrong perspective. And that's the way it is for us. Jesus doesn't tell us the future so that you, know, you can somehow become wealthy or become obsessed with dates and events and speculation about all the little details. People get obsessed with some of those things. What is that Bible prophecy there for? It's, it's there to ex- encourage us to godly living. And so as you study Bible prophecy, let it stimulate you to present obedience. Number two, just as Jesus says in the text here, do not listen to false teachers who twist events in order to develop their own agenda. <laughs> in fact, look what Jesus says in verse four. He says, Jesus answered them, he says, See that no one leads you astray. Now, he's talking to his disciples there, but as, as his disciples and followers today, we've got the same problem. Today, there are false teachers. We got guys like Charles Russell of the Jehovah's Witnesses who make multiple claims of stuff that's going to happen. And of course, they all get it wrong. Uh, The one that I'm thinking of recently is Harold Camping. He he made several dates, came up with several dates of God's judgment and the Lord's return. Of course, he got it wrong too. All right, beware of these kind of people. Don't listen to these false teachers, They're, they're twisting things number three think about this is be careful don't make too much of natural disasters some people make a lot of the natural disasters that happen tsunamis earthquakes hurricanes and so forth these things have happened throughout history and and they're going to continue to happen so so don't don't make yourself look like a fool by saying oh that you know tsunami christ is coming tomorrow right People have done that sort of thing. These things, when, when you see the natural disasters, they're only showing that the last days have begun. It's not showing that the end time is here. Does that make sense? They're only building up to that. And then I want you to believe something. Okay, Bible prophecy should, should stimulate us to live present o- obedience to God in the present. But I also want you to believe something. That the study of the future should produce conviction in us about what is going to happen. All right, You don't know everything, of course. But God has told us some things that we know because God knows the future. It's His story. And so Jesus warns us against being alarmed. He warns us against being alarmed here. In fact, if you look at verse 6, He says, You're going to hear of wars and rumors of war. See, you are not alarmed. Right? Don't be alarmed. But have conviction, by all means. Don't be alarmed when various international events seem to indicate the world is falling apart. <laughs> Jesus said that has to happen. It's going to happen. And so when we're convinced the end of the world is, is only going to come when Jesus returns, then that gives us conviction. We can maintain hope no matter how bad things get in this world, right? And it's bad, isn't it? So even when the world's falling apart, we still maintain hope in Jesus Christ. We know He's going to return. We know God's in control of all the events that are happening. So, As I was thinking about, well, what is the theme of this passage? What what can we walk away with? (laughs) Well, here's here's a thought for you. Here's, Here's what I think we should think about as we look at this passage here. And it's this. God's plans for His followers will go forward in spite of of hardship. In spite of hardship, despite how dark this world may appear and how bad it's getting, God's plans for His followers are going forward. God is still sovereign. He's still on the throne. He's still working. He's still alive. He is still in control, and He is accomplishing His purposes. Don't give up on God. God's plans for His followers will go forward in spite of of hardship. May God causes us to believe that.